We are the Marcelin Brothers, and this is the Marcelin Brothers Podcast, MBP for short. We are here to share our story and to contribute our thoughts about everyday topics in life. Time to sit back, relax, and get ready for the MVP attack. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Today is August 21st, 2019. And if you are listening or watching, you are listening or watching to the Marceline Brothers podcast, my MBP crew. What is going on, Marceline Cubed? Hey. Oh, yeah. It's good to be back. It's been a while. Yes, we it have has. All three Marceline brothers. When was the last time we were all on a podcast together? It's been a little while. It must have been like a month. <laughs> At least. Minimum. It's been a minute. It's been Gosh. a minute. It feels good to be back. Man, so let's try to do a little, really, really quick recap. Christopher, I think the last time we had you on a podcast, you had just finished residency? And is that, you, that right? And I think we did a recording and you had made a comment about, hey, yeah, guys, this is where I live. You're used to seeing the hospital call room, but no, this is where I live. I think that was the last time we had a podcast. What's been going on since then? Oh, you're right. Lots of changes. Lots of changes. So I actually started in being employed as an attending. Um, it was very interesting, very weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was waiting for my attending to come into the room and talk to me, and I was just like, oh, wait, that's me. Um, very cool. It's awesome to finally reach the milestone for what you've been working for for 12-plus years, and it feels great. I'm happy to be here. Cool, cool, cool. And then, Marvin, it's been a little bit, too. I mean, there's there's been some changes for you since the last time we spoke. Why don't you tell the crew what's going on with you? What are you up to? I mean, I'm still chugging along. Uh, like we mentioned before, I'm in my last and final year, year number three. Uh, okay. I am uh, one of the chiefs of my program as well. And, you know, uh, I essentially have 10 more months left. Craziness, craziness. So my goal is to eventually buy a practice. Um, I've, I've slowly but surely segued my thinking into that's essentially what I want to do when it's um, all said and done and I'm finished with residency. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Very good. Very good. And then for me, same thing, chugging along. I am very fortunate because I think the last time we spoke, I don't know if I told the group or not, but I am starting to close in on rental property number two. Oh, so so wow, the plan is impressive. yeah the plan is one a year so we are on number two we haven't finalized but we agreed on a price and now we're doing the inspection and now we're taking a look at what we need to do to come to a place of agreement between myself and the seller so hopefully i'll have pretty good news to share in some upcoming episodes for sure and then uh another note that i want to throw out there is I'm going on vacation starting Friday evening. 
Oh, oh wow. Man. Where are you going? I'm going to Greece. Going to Greece. Uh, All right. Uh, so can we have another? Like, awesome. We need to just continue this tradition. The last time you're on vacation, we will do a podcast episode. And I think from looking at all of the the likes and the hits from looking at the stats that was one of the more watched episodes so i think we need to see if we can do something in greece marvin what do you think come on make it work we'll see what happens you know there's a lot of things that go into it i.e do i have uh, internet connectivity etc etc but that should be fun yeah let's just try to make it work man i mean i know you'll be at a different time zone from last time, but hey, let's see if we can make it work. Yeah. MVP attack from Greece. All right. I'll be going on vacation also. I'll be going to Barbados. Not this week, but next week. So who knows? Maybe we'll be able. Well, I don't know because I don't know. We'll see. Maybe we can make that work too. That's yeah. awesome. You guys are both going on vacation. That's really nice. You guys deserve it. You guys are killing it, working hard. Hey, you came back from a vacation yourself, though. I mean, how how was how was that experience? I know you told me a little bit about it in the pool. Maybe that's the story for another time. Oh yeah, we had a great time. We went down to Cancun. We went to an all-inclusive resort, and we went without kids and a couple of our friends from high school. It was amazing. It was a blast. We had a great time. I'm definitely ready to go back. Didn't they try to sell you a timeshare though? Oh, yeah. We went to a timeshare meeting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, they almost they almost got me for half a second, and then I saw right through their ploys. Pretty much one person came in, and they take you to their nicest resort that they own, and they kind of suck you in once you start to see the amenities. But just the salesperson was kind of saying things that didn't make sense, like the deal was too good to be true. And I even called her out on a couple of them, and she confirmed. And then I started to see, I started to look over to my wife Ty and like try to make eye contact. And I already knew that she had love in her eyes. And at that point, I started to sweat a little bit because I was like, "Oh man, am I really gonna walk away with uh, whatever they're selling?" But then they take you up to the executive suites where they have like their their closer come in and start talking about things. And I noticed, I was like, listen, half the things your other salesperson said downstairs, you're kind of glossing over and refuting. So I kind of called her on it. And at that point, we ended. I'm telling the, you. The timeshare stuff. It's a, they literally will say whatever they can. And they'll, the one person will straight out, outright lie to you. And then when you start seeing fine print, it'll say something. Something completely different. They'll do whatever they can to close. I no told morals. you, like like I was telling you before, uh, it's you have to have ammunition if you're gonna go to one of those timeshare sales pitches because they're very good at what they do. The psychology aspect of it is bar none, fantastic. So they will get you to feel that all um, that that all that's so fantastic and perfect and beautiful and then if you come in with two people then they'll play that game of they'll get one of the people to really fall in love and then it turns into good cop bad cop it's tough man if you're going in blind watch out watch out i'm telling you because i i went through all that i went through it (laughs) 
That's why you want to make sure you listen to our past podcast, which tells you exactly what they're going to say and how you counteract each of them. If you ever get concerned, just say, hey, if it's as good as as you say it is, let me go home, let me sleep on it, and I'll come back to you. If they don't let you do it, then you know, hey, it's not too good to be true, and that's your savior. Yeah, none of them will let you go home. But I'm telling you, I would have bought it based off of what the first salesperson was telling me. But I just knew if it's too good to be true, this would be advertised on the Internet. Everyone would be telling you about this deal before you even got there. They would say, hey, make sure you go to XYZ timeshare meeting and you'll get the deal of a lifetime. But no one comes back and says that. And what's funny is I met a couple of other couples throughout the trip that I'm at least happy that they've gone back a second time and they're trying to make use of their uh, timeshare that they bought in previous trips. But you could definitely tell that um, they weren't really satisfied, but they were trying to put up a front that they were happy. But there were definitely some holes in their stories. Mm. Well, congratulations for not being statistic. I still think for me, it's just better for me to find a deal on my own because... Yeah, they may say this is some trip of a lifetime type deal, but I feel like if you want to do it bad enough, and you guys are perfect, both of you guys are perfect, you know, your characteristics of what you did when you planned your own trips, you were able to plan a trip of a lifetime without having to do one of these timeshares. I mean, Christopher, for your honeymoon, it was spectacular, all the stuff that you did, and you were able to do it on a budget. And Marvin, the same thing with you. You guys were both able to do things in countries in asia and you did it at a very reasonable price so that just goes to show that you don't need one of these special timeshare packages to be able to make it work as long as you do a little bit of work or you can even google itineraries and just use them and do them on your own you're able to do what you need to do so i'm glad that you didn't fall into that all right so why don't we have dr alan christopher marcelin go first well, 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 don't mind if I do. Um, I picked an article that's kind of what's been going on the last year, year or two. Um, it's a little bit more on the medical side, a little more near and dear to my heart. It's talking about um, the opioid crisis, and now they're saying another um, target that I guess that they're going to move on to attack to decrease the amount of opioids prescribed. So the title of the article is Wisdom teeth removal is contributing to the opioid crisis, experts warn. So they go through and they talk about statistics. Five million Americans, uh, most of them are adolescent and young adults, have their wisdom teeth removed. And most are prescribed opioids for pain during the recovery. And they're saying that they're pushing to change the prescribing guidelines because they're saying there was a staggering half a million to un- no, I'm sorry, 18 million prescriptions of opioids being prescribed, and pretty much every opioid prescribed is a chance for someone to become addicted to opioids afterwards. Uh, they pushed, and in 2017, I believe, they cut the amount prescribed by half a million, but there's still tens of millions being prescribed. Um, and then they give a story of a young lady, Ellen Early. She's a young mother with a 16-month-old boy. 
It was a 22-year-old who had her wisdom teeth removed. She was prescribed opioids by the dentist. Um, apparently, the patient's family said that he just wrote the prescription, didn't tell him anything about potential risks of being addicted, anything like that. Um, he even told them, I just gave you a five-day supply. If you need more, just call. Um, shortly after, she started, she received several refills for the pain medication, and she became dependent, and then moved on to heroin. So opioids was the gateway drug to moving on to heroin once she could no longer receive a prescription. Um, and then apparently 15 months after having her wisdom teeth removed, she overdosed and died. Um, so they're just highlighting that for dental care, such as wisdom teeth extraction, uh, they believe acetaminophen and ibuprofen, NSAIDs and Tylenol is better for pain control. You don't really need opioids. They're really cutting, coming down on dentists for prescribing opioids. Uh, it's painful, but not something that they believe requires any opioids. And if you are prescribing opioids, just engage in a conversation with the patient. Let them know that there's a risk to becoming addicted if they take them improperly and just to take them for a short period of time. But on the flip side, I have this conversation with my patients every single um, If you're having acute surgery, it is indicated to get opioids. The trick is to, you want to get that fine balance of giving out the least amount of opioids to a patient, but enough to keep them comfortable after surgery. It's all about a mindset. You have to let them know, prepare them. You're having surgery. There's going to be discomfort. There's going to be pain. The opioids are there to make the pain manageable, not to take it completely away. So that's it. So just once again, another another point of attack against the opioid crisis. What I think is interesting and good article, so you guys, well, Marvin, you may not be aware, but Christopher, just from being in the state of Florida, so, you know, the state of Florida has actually changed the processes as far as how many days supply you are able to prescribe opiates for if they're being used for acute pain. In the past, you could probably... Three days supply. There's an acute and there's an acute rationale for that. And if it's acute, then it's three days and you can push it up to seven if the physician feels that is acute pain and it is medically necessary to be able to treat it. So that's something that has come to pass, you know, just recently within the last year. And part of that is due to the opioid epidemic that they've got going on. And a lot of what people are seeing is that this stuff starts with prescription medications and not being educated on what to expect. So I know that is one thing that at least the state of Florida is trying to do because the state of Florida, I mean, actually Broward County, I believe, Broward and Dave County were considered the pill mills of the United States where you'd have these physicians who would write fake prescription or prescriptions, but for fake indications and people would just come in and they would buy the prescriptions essentially just so that they could use it. So I know that the state of Florida is at least trying to change that by limiting the amount that you can use for an acute reason. And I think, and just as you guys know, the whole key with pain, I mean, pain is so subjective, but they're also like the, when you're doing your HCAP scores, so, you know, HCAP is, you know, a measure of patience and how well 
you know, they feel that they're doing in the hospital, how the care of their stay was. And it's even changed to a point where before is, you know, how is your pain? How is your pain being treated? And now they're even considering taking that question away from the survey because of the fact that pain is just so subjective. And when you're focusing on pain, again, when you're in a hospital, it's understanding, well, what was your baseline of pain? Your baseline of pain may not be zero. So when you're telling a patient, hey, what is your pain score between zero and 10? You know, I think prescribers and I think practitioners and caregivers need to be able to explain to their patients that zero may not be the goal for you. You know, maybe your goal is five or six and you're at an eight. If we can get you to a five, then that is what your goal is. So I think there are lots of things that we can do as practitioners to make sure that we are giving our patients a something to shoot for and it's got to be something that is you know within expectations so you know i think looking at stuff from that perspective and then you know also educating your patients and letting them know hey the best way for you to treat pain is to take care of it before it gets unbearable because if you're if you're trying to control before it gets bad then you're going to be able to control it but if you're already at a 10 there's no way you're going to go from a 10 to a zero but if you're at like a five and you're about to go to a six or a seven, you know, you can take that medication ahead of time so that you never get past that eight and then you'll feel more comfortable. So I think those are some of the things that I've just seen from my practice, my experiences as a pharmacist that will help with this whole, you know, pain epidemic and trying to be reasonable and rational about what we are trying to do as providers. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, you can go into the history and uh, the the myriad the the marriage between you know a lot of these pain medications and the uh, prescription drug companies that created the drugs in the first place. You can go down that route, but instead of going that direction, uh, I noticed that there are other ways to potentially get around it, and of which you know physical therapy is something that's. Um, a lot of people are saying, look, this is one of the modalities that uh, people are kind of, they were shying away from it for whatever reasons. And of which one of them was, for whatever reason, sometimes insurance companies just wouldn't cover it past a certain point. Um, maybe they, there could be ways to increase the amount of time uh, and hours that you're allowed to do physical therapy. Um, and then there's new companies that are coming out with trying to bring back the old remedies like your rest ice compression elevation but using different uh, machinery to kind of replicate that um, in, in in such a way that you are using different aspects of pain to your advantage such that you're not necessarily trying to go from like you were saying a 10 to a zero but maybe you can go from a 10 to a good manageable six and then once you get to that level, um, uh, continuing to heal, eventually that 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 number will go down even lower to an even more manageable aspect. So I think we are going in the right direction when it comes to talking about it more and finding ways to decrease our dependence on it. But you know, this is something that is still a, an epidemic, and it's. It's crazy because even here in Pennsylvania, there's a huge uh, dependency to with opioids and um, 
we're still trying to find ways to cut back. Oh, good discussion. This is a good discussion. All right, Marvin. Um, if there's any, nothing else, you want to talk about your article? Yeah. So um, for my article, I was just flipping through, you know, my medium to find articles and whatnot. And I found, a, I stumbled upon one which was pretty interesting. This was uh, through NBC News. And the title is, A California High School Found Students' Cell Phones Too Distracting, So They're Locking the Devices Up. So some experts say that taking away the students' devices creates its own kind of distraction and anxiety for students. But it was enough to just tell students at San Mateo High School to put their cell phones away during class. Now officials at the California school have told them that they have to lock them away. While their familiar companions may still be near, the high schoolers are now required to keep their devices in a magnetically sealed pouch during school hours. Uh, mounting frustration over student attentiveness led administrators at the school, which is about 20 miles south of San Francisco, to institute the new policy this year, which kicked off earlier this month. We could walk into a variety of classrooms and kids would be on their cell phones anywhere from five seconds checking a text to 30 to 45 minutes at a time, one of the assistant principals of the high school told um, the NBC News. Basically, you're here to learn. You're here to work with your teachers and students, and we're getting away from that because the cell phones are very addictive. Every school day, nearly 1,700 students place their devices in a yonder pouch, spelled Y-O-N-D-R pouch, that closes with a proprietary lock. School administrators unlock them at the end of the day. While administrators and teachers say they have already noticed a positive effect on students, the policy has elicited mixed reactions from researchers who argue that it's long-term about its long-term effectiveness. Devices remain in the student's possession, but they aren't able to access them. Uh, the program was funded with a $20,000 grant, and the pouches have been assigned to students at no cost, but losing one will cost the high schoolers a $25 replacement fee. So this article goes on to talk about this new concept. So what I found interesting was, uh, you know, we're all relatively the same age, give or take, you know, five to seven years or whatever. But we grew up in a time before cell phones, and then we grew up during cell phone era. And, you know, during certain, you know, horrible instances like 9-11, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it was one of those things where initially schools weren't sure about how they felt about cell phones. And then schools decided, okay, it's okay for children to have their cell phones because their loved ones should be able to have access to them when needed, especially during um, really uh, horrible situations. Um, but now, you know, studies are coming out and they're showing that, you know what, the student attentiveness is not as high as it should be while in school, uh, this article went on to say that a study from Rutgers University, University found that students who had cell phones or laptops during lessons scored 5% or half a letter grade lower on exams than students who weren't using electronics. So now they're, they're doing more uh, studies and research is showing that having that cell phone in the classroom is distracting to the students to the point where 
it's actually affecting their ability to do well in school, which could have implications in the future as far as, you know, what uh, careers they get into, et cetera, et cetera. So they're kind of pushing back. Now, instead of saying no cell phones are allowed on school, they're basically saying, yeah, you can bring your cell phones to school, but while we're actively during school hours, everyone is required to put their own personal cell phone in their own pouch. And then those pouches are locked up. And even though you have access to the pouch, you can't access your phone. And so at the end of the day, these pouches get unlocked and you can take your phones and go. So this is a new style that um, they're trying to implement in order to restrain the amount of people utilizing cell phones during their school year. So what do you think about that concept? Um. I have a lot of I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, my first question: uh, Forget what age group was the original study? The kids in the original study was this college, high school? Um, I believe middle this school? was uh, high school. I believe this was high school. So high schools operating in the gray zone. Um, elementary, middle school, sure. Um, um, high school, you're getting to that age where Listen, the facts are, in your job, there's not really going to be a magnetic pouch that's going to be sealed away. You're going to have to learn how to focus on your own, make the decision that, hey, I need to be attentive during these hours. I need to make the mental choice to not go on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, uh, Candy Crush. I might have dated myself by saying the games that I know about. But you have to make the conscious effort that during business hours, I need to focus. And on my own leisure time, I can use my phone for my leisure activity. When you got into the real world, no one's putting your phone in a magnetic pouch. You can't control yourself. You're going to do poorly at your job. And you're going to end up having low productivity and possibly could lead to being terminated, fired. So at a certain point, you do have to learn how to do it yourself. So with college, I completely think that that's on your own. You're an adult at that age. You should be able to multitask, have a laptop out. If you do not want to go to class, that's up to you to not go. And on the flip side, elementary, you're a little bit too young. You're still developing as an adult. You're still developing your brain. You might need a little help. But high school is kind of that difficult gray zone where you're going to be on your own soon. You're going to be over 18 soon. So... You, you might have to learn the priorities. So it's tough. I can see where both sides are coming from. Definitely productivity is going down. I notice in some classes, I took, I took my laptop to college. I feel like I'm kind of in the era where I had a little bit of both. I was earlier to maybe senior year of high school is when I started having electronics with me at all times and in college from day one like you had a laptop everywhere you went so i had both experiences it's easier to pay attention i remember in high school when i didn't have a phone or a laptop but at the same time it's easier to get work done when you do have the right tools in front of you if you're able to focus use your laptop powerpoint excel do whatever you need to do to study i kind of feel that Yes, you have to learn how to deal with all these distractions, but if you're not setting up the foundation of this by not having the students do it and letting them know, hey, the reason why you don't want to do this is X, Y, and Z, 
if it's just hey do whatever you want then they're definitely i would say that it would seem like it's allowed and normal and if that's the norm then they're going to do it so i kind of do like these schools setting up that structure because what we're also finding too is that people aren't as social as they used to be or there's a different type of social social before used to be communication it used to be interacting with individuals and depending on what type of field you're going to be into you know being able to have a conversation with somebody being able to just the little things that people that we probably take for granted like eye contact and having a conversation with somebody like my nephews i i'm seeing the way that they're interacting and it's just different. They're always on their head down. They're always on their phone trying to have a conversation. The conversations I feel aren't like what they used to be when we were growing up because you have this object that is taking their mind. Now, I know we all had video games, you know, when we were growing up, but I feel like the ease and and how easy it is for individuals to look at electronics you know, does stunt some of the conversation skills that people have, people learn just through example. Now, at the same time, like what Christopher is saying, I mean, I think the way that communication is nowadays, it is a lot more tech. It is a lot more emails versus talking on the phone. It is a lot more webcams and web-based type stuff versus you know, the traditional talking. So that's the other caveat is, is this the new norm? Is this how, is this generation who is all into the cell phones is the way that people are going to be communicating when they end up being in the work field? It's probably going to be a different way than how things are now. So I still think it's good, at least in the very beginning, to set the foundation that way. Then, you know, once you're on your own, then do whatever you want, because these years that you have setting up now are the most formidable years. You know, once once you're 18, you you're an adult, you do whatever you want to do. But I feel like teaching them to a certain point, I think, is is a good thing. And for me, I think having this rule would be good, because if they don't have this rule, then I feel like they're more prone to do this for the rest of their life, which may not be the I, best thing. I definitely agree with the rule of not having phones out during class. Uh, I don't know, know how much overkill it is for the schools to have to go out. Did you say it was a $25 or $25,000? So it, it was a grant for $20,000. Now, that price was not bestowed upon the students. It was for free. Um, it was just a $25 payment if you lost your pouch. So depending on what school you go to, the socioeconomics, I can't condone spending $25,000 on pouches to seal phones when there's lots of other things. Some schools need actual markers, books, crayons, uh, supplies for sports, etc., that doesn't go to the top of my uh, financial bracket, but I definitely agree with no phones in class, the actual rule, and how I guess each individual school district can come up with their own solutions on how to enforce the rule. 
I would be curious to see if they were able to follow a group for like four years or whatever, and then they compare a school that implements this versus a school that doesn't to see how students do in the long run. Uh, that could be some serious, like, you know, you can get some good data out of that, but I don't know if that would be something people are interested in doing. Well, they talked about in this article, and you kind of read it already. There was a study from Rutgers University that found that students who had cell phones or laptops during lessons scored 5% or half a letter grade lower on exams than students who weren't using electronics. So, I mean, I, it makes sense. And it, the reason why it makes sense is if I am in class and I'm on my phone, I may not be hearing certain key points of what the lecture is that may be on the exam. And because I didn't hear it and I didn't write it down, I'm not going to get that. So I do think that part of that is if you're paying attention and you are hearing things, you're going to be more apt to understanding something versus when you're on your phone. Because, yes, multi everybody talks about multitasking, but at the end of the day, you can really solely, truly, instead of when you're multitasking, you're just very quickly, you're looking at one thing and then you're looking at something else. And it may be very quick to the point where you feel like you're listening to both, but 100% of your your focus is not going to be on multiple things at once. You just, the way that your body and your mind works is that you're able to switch back and forth very quickly, maybe within a second or two, but there's no way you can fully look 100% of your total time and effort onto one thing. So I kind of feel like that study kind of tells you what the effects of the cell phone usage. But that could be cell phones, that could be laptops, like it says, that could be somebody who's goofing off, talking, writing notes. You mean you can be writing down stuff, you could be drawing and not paying attention. So there's gonna be different things that are going to be in the way from focusing. But I do feel like something that's shiny, that's interactive, is gonna take your mind more than, you know, something else. It's like when kids see people with phones and they see something and they it's that cause and effect you touch it 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 does something and that's what keeps you captivated and again i i feel that you know the facebook's the google's the instagram's they all know this they set it up this way on purpose because it makes you want to look more and more and more like if you ever notice if you have your Facebook hooked up to your email address and you get an email saying, hey, somebody wrote this message and they say like one or two words and then it cuts it off. I mean, they have it designed like that purposely so that you have to go in and, hey, what do they do? I have to go log in to Facebook and see exactly what it, that message says. And once they're there, then there are ads that are there. There are more clicks and that just gets you to go onto their website. So that stuff is all like you said psycho like you know a lot of psychology goes into that and behavioral sciences goes into that i don't even believe in um multitasking i don't think it's real <laughs> agreed yeah i'm not good at it any other things that you want to bring up from your article marvin no it it's just um it just makes me think that as time goes on, each new generation has their own hurdles that they have to go through. And this is just one of those that the generation below us will definitely need to figure out uh, how to swim through all this distraction. So 
Well, so I guess I'm going I'm to choose to do a little detour because it's our podcast. So we, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, cell phone usage, multimedia, but, you know, I do think social media is a big presence. I don't know if, you know, you have any thoughts on that because I know you've got your experiences and your thoughts and your views on social media. I mean, what do you think, Marvin, about social media, you know, what it does and kind of what your views and what you personally do yourself with social media? So me, I actively chose not to have a social media uh, for the time being. And, you know, people say, well, the reason why they want it is because they want to catch up with other people and they want to see how other people are doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, my point of view was, well, I, for one, don't have enough attention to dedicate all this to so many different multitudes of people. But then at the same time, if someone truly wants to catch up with me, they can just call me and then we can link up that way or text me. So I would rather have that more of a one-on-one direct communication if you truly want to catch up. Otherwise, uh, I feel like it's a waste a lot of time. Now, I say that from the point of view of just my own personal life, but when it comes to business and trying to you know, promote a product, I totally get the importance of social media. And that's something that I would be interested in pursuing if it has a means to the end. And the means has to be something that will really um, help you out in the long run. So for me, if it's just a matter of catching up with how someone else is doing in their life, I'm not interested in it. But if I can actually make money off of it, then that's something that I would be interested in. Like you don't so, feel like you've lost out on anything. No, I don't feel like I've lost out on anything. Um, again, if someone, if if it's some, somebody that is truly important to me, or they truly feel that I'm important to them, then I re- I would rather them reach out and talk to me personally. Or I do the same. I reach out and talk to them personally as opposed to just seeing how their life is through pictures uh, on uh, social media. And I don't know. My views on social media is somewhat similar to yours um, as far as I feel like in 2007, kind of the earlier days of Facebook, it was more about connecting, catching up. It was literally just a page with your friends, pictures, and people commenting back and forth. And now I feel like there's no real status updates about what's going on in people's actual lives. It's all about the um, whatever political message of the day, people going back and forth, um, the mob mentality of you have to agree with what I say or you're anti whatever I say a lot of politics just back and forth bashing and it's not you can't tell me one person who's actually changed their views on someone on something based off of what's going on in Facebook so a lot of just uh, anti left or right or anti police or anti whatever going back and forth a lot of memes, a lot of just videos, and a lot of ads for stuff. It's not really for catching up. So it's a great 
if you want to just lose yourself and um, pass time for 10 minutes. But it, I don't really believe that it's really there for following or catching up with people. I do think you bring up a very good point when it comes to that because, well, first off, the beginning of Facebook was not like 2007, 2008, young man. <laughs> but I feel like it was a lot earlier than that. But no, I think you're totally right. And I think it's kind of like the first time I remember interactions with different individuals. You know, yes, email was out, but I think email was, you know, you send an email, you wait, you get one, then I, I do remember having email conversations, but what I think for me really took made things take off was when you had the AOL Instant Messenger. And that, for me, when I was in college, that was like the big thing. People would get an instant message. You'd have your screen names and people would message back and forth. And that is when I feel like the whole being able to communicate with individuals through, you know, some sort of web-based platform really took off looking back at facebook you're exactly right i just remember people having status updates and some of the status updates would just be you know people just you know saying hello communicating maybe having a thought of the day but you are so right now like the way that facebook and other types of you know social media platforms it, it went from being able to give people an opportunity to catch up to people sharing their views to now expanding news, it's taken off to something that I don't think the initial web media individual study would take off to. And I think that you are right when it comes to that is, you know, if you are having some idle time, yes, it's a great way to be able to make the day go by a little quicker if you have idle time, but man, if you don't watch it, it could definitely, you know, you go from 10 minutes of, you know, looking at the webpage maybe before you, you know, get onto a bus somewhere else. But those 10 minutes, you could be using that to educate yourself by listening to a podcast or having a conversation with your neighbor or being able to do something that will have much more of a lasting impression on you. You know, yes, I think Facebook is nice because, for me, you know, there are people that I don't talk to a lot, but I am able to see what they're doing, what they're up to. And I and it kind of makes me feel like I know what's going on. But I think sometimes it goes more than that. And it's just more of a buffer for me to, hey, I'm bored or, hey, I'm doing something. I need a little mental break. And I think those things can be bad if you take too many of those. And I remember there was the argument where... Really... I was going to say there was an argument that um, at, at one time Facebook or social media was a place to kind of park your memories so that you can go back to it at whatever point in time and, and re recollect everything. But now there's other services that servers or what have you that can do that for you without having to post everything online for, for the world to see. I mean, I, I utilize Google Photos for that very reason. And it actually does a very good job of um, keeping things chronologically in order, unlimited storage, and then I can retrieve it whenever I want. I can choose to share images with family and loved ones if I want to or not, but I don't have to worry about or see um, just 
posts after posts after posts um, with people trying to persuade you in one way or another. So I like it. And on top of, I don't even believe that you're really catching up because people are posting staged photos <laughs> that are designed just to look good on Facebook. It, they could be standing at behind a green screen or something. I know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, but it's literally pictures that are designed to make you jealous or to make you think that that other person's life isn't. When actuality, you have no idea what's really going on. It's like people are doing it for the like, for the reaction versus, hey, this is me. Like, for instance, oh, let me get an outfit on. Oh, this is going to be my outfit of the day. Let me do a selfie. Let me do, you know, the the selfie duck face because I know this is going to get these likes versus, hey, I want to let people know what's going on with my life. So I totally hear you when, when it comes to that. I think it's just changed the way people look at sharing the persona that they want people to have all right time for my article all righty all right we're gonna do we're gonna change it to business so i've got an article from the from money the name of the article is do you have one million dollars in your 401k yet the number of people who did just hit an all-time high. And this was written by Brad Tuttle four hours ago. So this is straight off the presses. Years of continued growth in the stock market has nudged the number of 401k millionaires to an all-time record high Fidelity Investments reported on Wednesday. So again, 401k millionaires are essentially individuals who in their retirement funds have a net worth of $1 million. Fidelity says that the number of 401k millionaires reached 196,000 at the end of the second quarter of 2019. The previous high for 401k millionaires was 187,400 in the third quarter of 2018. Around the start of 2017, there were only about 93,000 401k millionaires, according to Fidelity, meaning that the ranks of people with at least $1 million in their 401k accounts have more than doubled since then. How much money should you have saved in your 401k account? The answer to that depends on how old you are, how much money you make at work, and what kind of lifestyle you expect in retirement. Retirement experts say workers should be saving 12 to 15% of their pay in 401ks every year, and the value of your account should obviously rise swiftly as you near retirement age. If you're contributing to your 401k at the recommended amounts, you should have roughly twice your annual salary saved by the age of 35, Fidelity says. When you hit 50, your 401k balance should be roughly six times your annual salary. And by 67, you should have 10 times your annual salary saved in your 401k. Bear in mind that a vast majority of workers are not 401k millionaires, nor are they anywhere near the $1 million mark. The average 401k balance at the end of the second quarter of 2019 was only 106000 according to Fidelity. That's also a record up from 104000 in the third quarter of 2018 and a steep incline from a decade ago during the recession of 2009 when the average 401k balance was $52,000. If you don't have anywhere near your $1 million in your 401k, you don't necessarily need to feel bad, especially if you're fairly young and haven't hit peak earning years yet in your career. But take note, it's always best to start saving when you're as young as possible to maximize the likelihood you can enjoy a happy 
and mostly worry-free retirement. So, what do you guys think about this article? 401ks, millionaire status, savings, retirement. I think those are all parts of the tenets of what we're trying to you know, showcase to our viewers, the importance of all of those. But I'm going to take it a step further and say, I think what it all boils down to is finding ways for your money to make money for you. So uh, whether it's getting putting it to work through a 401k that's linked to some sort of um, investment vehicle or um, finding ways to do investments outside of the um, just stock market, if you will, or just being wise about um, the use of your money. Um, money, to me, at least, is, is a form of energy and it's a form of opportunity and it's something that should be utilized to continue to open more doors, more opportunities, and to uh, kind of work for you on your behalf without you necessarily having to work there. So I think articles like this um, is important because it does showcase the, the importance of having a 401k. Uh, it also showcases that this is something that um, you can do as well. And, you know, it's important to just understand the terminology and and what these things can do for you in the long run if used properly. What do you think that's for? Very good, thorough explanation. It definitely reminds us that there's lots of work. And it definitely reminded me that I got a long way to go. I definitely <laughs> just now. Uh, I started even earning income, so I got a lot of work ahead of me, but it gives a nice attainable goal and it sets some markers to aim for, which is definitely important. If you just hear the word millionaire, it kind of gets a little discouraging, but it kind of has a step-by-step -step breakdown of where you should be at a certain age, which is nice. It's something that you can actually shoot for and get you on the right track. What is the saying? Shoot for the stars, land on the moon or something like that? Aim for the stars, land on the moon. So it should have everybody moving in the right direction, whether or not they actually hit the goals. They're still making improvements. Yeah. Well, some of you guys may be thinking, well, 401k, what is that? Where does it come from? And why do people talk about it all the time? So, you know, I decided to Google a brief history of the 401k. And what I found, and this is something that is from a Northwestern Mutual article. And what it's saying is, despite their popularity today, the 401k plans were created almost by accident. It started when the Congress Act, the Revenue Act of 1978, which included a provision that was added to the Internal Revenue Code, Section 401k, that allowed employees to avoid being taxed on deferred compensation. In 1980, benefits consultant Ted Benna referred to Section 401k while researching ways to design more tax-friendly retirement programs for a client. He came up with the idea to allow employees to save pre-tax money into a retirement plan while receiving an employer match. His client rejected the idea, so Benna's own company, the Johnson Companies, became the first company to provide a 401k plan to its workers. 
1981, the IRS issued new rules that allowed employers to fund their 401k through payroll deductions, which kickstarted the 401k's popularity. Within two years, nearly half of all big companies were offering 401ks or were considering it, according to the Employee Benefits Research Institute. So essentially, the purpose of this was to try to find ways to be able to help out employees with keeping more money in them in their accounts. And they looked at this part of the Internal Revenue Code to be able to prove that. So, you know, we're not going to necessarily into in this article talk about 401ks and what to do. But I mean, long story short, you know, mo- when you talk to most millionaires, you know, most millionaires and we're not talking about like billionaires, we're talking about, you know, millionaire next door type of people, people who have enough to be able to retire and, you know, they don't necessarily flaunt it. And what we find in lots of different articles and studies is that majority of the individuals who get their wealth, they get their wealth from being able to contribute to their 401k accounts. And I feel like this 401k is kind of the individual, the normal person's ticket to be able to retire and to be somewhat financially secure. And when I read this article, you know, it just kind of reminds me and and hopefully it reminds other people that, you know, if you, as long as you have time on your side and you start early enough and you use the stock market gains to your advantage, you have an opportunity to make money work for itself. You know, I think they say that the average return in the stock market is like eight or nine percent collectively over the last 60 or 70 years. Putting that money away, using compound interest, using time, setting it and forgetting it is one of the easier ways to be able to get to whatever your retirement goals are. So I think that, you know, looking at the amount of millionaire 401k millionaires there are now, it sounds like there is some sort of financial literacy that is being spread and people are finding out that being a millionaire may not be as far-fetched and difficult as it once was. Now, again, when you're reading these numbers, 196,000 people out of what a population of what, how many billions of people there are in the world. So this is, you know, the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. But the fact that this number is rising means that there is a formula that people can use to get to this point. And it looks like the easiest way to do it is to be saving the money out of your paycheck, putting that in the 401k and just letting it sit. So I think this is something that lots of people should be doing. I think if they're doing it early enough in advance and they let the power of compound interest and time do its work, then you're going to be okay. All right, all right, all right. That's a great way to sum it up. All right, so it's it's almost it's almost the next day. So why don't we use this opportunity to wrap up all of our articles? So, Christopher, you have any final words of wisdom you want to be able to share with the MVP crew? Um, we talked about opioids just now. Set your mindset. Pain control is subjective. Um, you're having surgery. Expect some discomfort. It's okay to take pain medications, use them as prescribed properly, and you'll be all right. Marvin, what do you want to leave with the crew? 
seems like every generation has their um, distraction that could, you know, put them in one direction versus another when it comes to being in school. Uh, this study was telling those who are able to focus more in school tend to do better. So try to limit those distractions while in school. Try your hardest to, you know, stay attentive and understand that, you know, having cell phones, it's not a bad thing, but just know when to use it. And I think for me is, you know, being a millionaire may not be as difficult as it once was. And if you use the power of compounded interest, time, and using your 401k account to be able to defer taxes so that your monies can grow, you can become a 401k millionaire one day. And it's a little easier than people think it may be. All right, all right, all right. So this has been another episode of the Marston Brothers podcast. Viewers, I hope you enjoyed another opportunity of M-Cubed on your screen or in your ears. Please, 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 please continue to contact us. You know, we definitely appreciate the love that you guys send us. If you want to be able to ask any questions or have any comments, there are many ways you are able to share those comments with us. First, you can either email us at marcelinbrothers at gmail.com. Please feel free to get at us from that avenue. Two, you can check us out on whatever podcast medium you choose. Please feel free to subscribe to any of those podcasts. Please make sure that you also give us an awesome five-star review because it's for you guys that we are doing what we do. So thank you very much for that. And you can always make sure that if there's anything that you need, reach out to us and we'll make sure we reach back out to you guys. So it's been another episode. M cubed. You guys were awesome. Let's do this again soon. And I think that is a wrap. So we are out. Talk to y'all later. Later. Thanks for listening to the Marston Brothers podcast. And remember, do work and make a difference in somebody's life.